Hi, I'm Ben Hamer and welcome to Exploring the Future of Work with PwC Australia. Amidst the COVID-19 health crisis, organisations in every sector have had to rethink how they get the job done. And now it's hard to even imagine going back to the way things were. So what have we learned? And what happens next? In this podcast series, we're going in search of some answers. In this episode, I chat with Toby Hall, Group CEO at St Vincent's Health Australia. We go into several issues, including how healthcare workers are rising to the challenge of a pandemic and how we need to celebrate them, how digital innovation is a journey, not a destination, where good is good enough, making sure organisations have a workforce that is as diverse as the communities that they serve, and the importance of upskilling for leaders, not just employees. You're exploring the future of work with PwC Australia. I'm joined by Toby Hall now, and with healthcare being undoubtedly shaken up from all directions with the pandemic, I'm armed with what feels like an endless list of questions. Toby, are you good to go? I'm definitely good to go. Uh, In St Vincent's, you have facilities spanning public and private hospitals all over the country, aged care, research institutes, and you must do a fair bit of travel in your role, particularly between New South Wales and Victoria. So I'm keen to get a view from someone who's quite in the know. What's the better city between Sydney and Melbourne? Uh, That that is a cruel question. Uh, I would say the food style and sports is probably better in Melbourne. But you can't really beat the harbour and the beaches in Sydney, which are just uh, outstanding. Melbourne can't rival those. So both cities are pretty good. I I think the one thing that is different, uh, Melbourne is very relational. Sydney is very business. And they're they're kind of uh, different from that regard. And so you've got to learn to behave differently in each city. Well, we're in Sydney now, so it's all business. Um, And we'll get straight into it, particularly uh, with COVID-19, obviously, because the demand and the pressure that it's placed on the healthcare system has been undeniably huge, particularly when it comes to the workforce from more traditional desk-based jobs right through to your frontline doctors and nurses. Can you talk a bit about some of the key impacts that the pandemic has had on healthcare workers? Well, I think the key thing is uh, is actually our healthcare workers are trained to expect a pandemic, they're trained to expect emergency responses, but when it actually happens, it still throws them. And so they've got to act differently, think differently, behave differently, and that makes people tired, behaviours change, but everyone wants to do really well. And it's kind of like, I've prepared all my life for this and suddenly it happens and it's like, whoa. And that's been the thing which has been the biggest wake-up call for us. But our people have just uh, done outstandingly through, uh, through this period in terms of being prepared to be agile to change and to quite often go beyond the call of duty at very short notice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, we've all observed from outside of the sector looking in is just in some areas in particular really needing to scale up the workforce quite quickly. How did you actually go about scaling up the workforce and how might that have differed between your public and private hospital workers? So interesting enough, in the in the private space, we didn't really need to scale up. What we did is we contracted pretty much all our private hospitals to deliver services to state governments and the federal government. And 
that actually meant that all our people were kept employed. And interesting enough, surgery got cancelled as well at the same time as we had to scale up. So it's probably more a case of repurposing. And in the process of repurposing, we had to do a lot of training for people to say, okay, you might not have dealt with respiratory issues for a long period of time. You won't have dealt with the severity of PPE issues for a long period of time because people don't wear the PPE gear you need in a pandemic normally. And actually saying, this is how you use it, this is how you train for it, absolutely key. This is how you manage respiratory issues. Now, to give you some context, you might have a clinician who's trained, become a doctor, moved into a field, but actually has not really dealt with respiratory issues for a long period of time. And so you almost have to go back to 101, do training. And that was a real challenge for us was wide scale rollout of training on PPE, retraining on uh, respiratory issues. And we did that with a lot of uh, online tools, uh, really short bursts, one hour kind of training programs for people just to refresh them. And that was a big deal to get the people we needed on track. The other thing we did is we actually put a call out uh, particularly when Victoria was right at the height of the pandemic to nurses around the country to say, look, if you're in New South Wales, it's kind of boring, there's nothing going on, we know you want to be where the action is, can you come down to Victoria? And we had a great response of people who were prepared to travel down to Victoria and uh, work down there, even though they knew they'd have to go and quarantine on the way home. Yeah, that definitely is a, a real sense of purpose with people who do work in healthcare, which has been awesome to see. And one of the things is, you know, we've been talking about workforce reform in healthcare for a while now, and I would say historically, you know, would it be fair to say that it's been quite slow in terms of how it's, you know, sort of been taken up? But then old COVID comes along and really forced the hand of a lot of change and a lot of change in a short period of time. I think about telehealth, for example. What do you think that we can learn from the pandemic and sustain as we start to embed a new normal? I think the uh, the key thing from the change we had through the pandemic, particularly when you look at stuff like telehealth, is actually people suddenly realised that you could get people to do new things very, very quickly. Now, they might not do it perfectly, and in health, it would be fair to say, a lot of the time, perfection is kind of important. If you're having an operation, you want perfection. But when you're dealing with the back-end stuff, when you're dealing with the recording, the reporting, uh, keeping the records, that, that doesn't necessarily need to be as perfect every time. And so we, we learned this uh, concept of uh, probably what we call is that good is good enough through the crisis, which meant we didn't have to have perfect telehealth systems if we had a telehealth system that worked, that was a good thing. Let's get one working, train people on it, and then we can adapt it and improve it. And I kind of look at it from the point of, you know, version 101 of an app is not very good, but version 3.4 is uh, much better. We took people on a 101, gave it to them and said, just work it, how to use it, go do it. And, you know, most clinicians actually were about 20 minutes. And we literally went from, in Sydney, from around 180 clinicians using telehealth to over 1,200 in a two-week period. So that was uh, that was pretty impressive. The other thing which is interesting is, again, comes back to this thinking of, in a crisis, good has got to be good enough, is we sent nurses from our Sydney Public Hospital into Newmarch House. And also in Melbourne did the same. We sent people into some of the aged care facilities, which are all over the press. and some of those nurses wouldn't have worked in aged care before. They didn't know the environment. They didn't know the space. People had to learn on the run. And what we found is actually people gained a real confidence, whether it's telehealth going into a new environment or a new treatment model, they were able to adapt. 
A lot of nurses in our private system normally dealing with surgery, so they might be used to orthopedics. Suddenly we're looking after COVID patients and very elderly COVID patients. But they repurposed, they worked, they had some training, and we had to trust that people would do everything they could. And they did, and they rose to the occasion and did brilliantly. And I think the, the key lesson for me from what you were just talking about, if I think how we can try and apply that to other sectors, is with technology rollout, as technology evolves and it evolves so fast, it's always going to become out of date at some point in time. So this idea of good is good enough um, is particularly useful. And then you can kind of look at the user experience and feedback in some of those insights to continually evolve, iterate and improve it. Yeah. Look, I think we've had this kind of psyche in the workplace that we're going to put in a new system. Everyone's kind of dreaming there's going to be this perfect new system come out. It's going to work wonderfully on day one. We're all going to be happy. It's going to be this brave new world. And the reality is for all of us, we know it never works that way. You get the thing on the first day and it's like, oh my God, how do I use this thing? How does it operate? Oh, this tool, which is supposed to be the bee's knees, is kind of not that good. And there's other parts you go, oh, this is really fun and it's good and you learn how to use it. But the reality is we've become used to being adaptive and particularly, I think, with the rollout of apps and first generation technology. Mobile phones, classic. If you go back to your first mobile phone, I mean, compare it to what you've got now. But no one trains you a mobile phone. You get it, and you play with it, you work out how to use it. If you go and buy the new iPhone 12, you'll get it, and there'll be new things on there that you have to learn. And the reality is I think we can transplant that into the workplace and say it's okay to let people learn on the go in a range of areas. Now, in health, there's some spaces where you, you, you cannot do that, but there's a whole range of spaces where you can do that and say we have to let that adaption happen, be prepared to let people learn as it goes, which means productivity might slip for a bit, It'll pick up, people will get good, they'll get uh, better at it. I, I actually think it's a better way to roll out technology and I think that's going to be where the future goes and the more you talk to people in the technology space and, and staff, they actually kind of prefer it that way because they're so used to it in their normal day-to-day -day life. Um, one of the impacts from the pandemic that I've observed again is, is that I really think that it's taught us that as a society we've perhaps undervalued our, our essential workers. I'm keen to hear from you around what do you think the pandemic has taught us about the importance of these roles in society and how do we ensure that they receive and get the appropriate recognition for what they do? When you go into the nursing space, uh, we, we had uh, probably 120 or so nurses and doctors catch COVID because they were serving and caring for other people in very challenging environments, prepared to put themselves at risk. Now, I'm not saying that's, a, that's what you would expect from our workers at all. We'd hope that would never happen, but it, they know there's the risk of that happening. My, my probably favourite example, though, in this space is Newmarch House. I, I was stupid enough to call the chairman, who's a friend of mine, and say, do you need any help? Now, when you do that as a CEO, the answer from the other person is, is supposed to be, no, no, we've got this, we're all under control, thanks very much. That's what I was expecting to hear. Uh, but what I heard was, no, we desperately need help. So we went to the hospital and said to our team, we, we can't ask you to do this, but would any of you volunteer to come and help at Newmarch House because they really need help on the ground from nurses. And is that an aged care facility? Uh, it's an aged care facility, yep. They had significant problems with COVID. They, they were one of the first places that had a really big outbreak of uh, COVID in New South Wales. And we had 20 nurses volunteer within 20 minutes to go and work out at, at Newmarch House. They went out the next day and they basically kept the place open for the next week. Now, all of them were doing that at a time right at the start of the crisis of COVID. They didn't know the risk. 
but all they knew is dangerous, but they were prepared to put themselves aside to go and do that work. And those kind of people are the ones that society should champion. They should be rewarded. We should be thanking them. And I think there's some wonderful everyday heroes out there in our society who, to be honest, time will pass by. They won't get the recognition, but we as a society should be incredibly grateful for the work they've done. Absolutely. And it's super inspiring to hear you talk about these stories as well. And I want to bring up something that you said in an article about halfway through 2020 when it comes to aged care. You said, we've spent the last six months acknowledging and celebrating the sacrifice and dedication of frontline healthcare workers in the face of the pandemic, and rightfully so. But I'll never understand how, despite showing exactly the same traits and often working under equally trying circumstances, we continue to largely overlook the contribution of the thousands of Australians who work in aged care. Now, this is particularly worrying because we've done some research here at PwC that says that Australia will need an extra 400,000 more aged care workers in the next 20 years. How do you think we can actually go about attracting people to work in the aged care profession in light of all of this? I think firstly, it's a it's a great area for people to work in. The the joy of working with older people is an incredible thing. And in fact, one of the things we've got to relearn in Australian society, which I think our Asian neighbours are excellent at, is loving our older older generations and understanding the joy and the benefits of working with them. I I think we've got to say to people that you are one of the most important workers in Australia when you're doing this work. You're looking after our most precious. Uh, people people who are often very, very sick. I think creating an environment where we can say to people, come and work, you can have, I think, pretty good work-life balance, you can have meaning and purpose in your life, plus you can actually deliver a whole range of healthcare outcomes for people is something we've got to start to promote to people. What, what I think has been challenging, and I, I, don't, I don't want to knock the work that's um, happened with places like the Royal Commission, but the first report out of the Royal Commission had no recognition for the vast majority of workers in aged care for the great work that they do. Uh, what it did focus on was a very small percentage of people who did the wrong thing. And I think we've got to stop and say as Australia, that's the wrong thing to do. Let's celebrate the wonderful care that many people in aged care have been given. Let's celebrate the staff who are actually often very poorly paid, who are giving up their time to care for our parents, our family members. That, that's something we should cherish. Let's start to cherish that. And it's not to diminish our health workers. I love our nurses and our doctors. They do wonderful work as well. But they get the respect. And it's interesting in the hospitals, we had gifts, food, drinks pouring in almost nonstop into our hospitals for our staff and for our doctors. I, I haven't heard of one case of that happening in our aged care facilities. And that's where I think we need to reset our thinking. Well, let's start to lift our heads now out of COVID-19 because I'm keen to get onto the topic of skills. And at PwC Australia, we recently asked our people about exactly that. So in our Thinking Beyond research, we heard that more than half of our people said that they think that digital skills are critical in the future of work. And one in five said that they think that the top priority was leadership and interpersonal communication as a skill. Now, health workers aren't immune to this either, uh, particularly when we look at doctors and nurses who are traditionally more of a technical bunch. So how do you think we can go about building and developing some of these skills, particularly with the clinical workforce? I think the, the heart of the clinical workforce is really interesting. Pe people go into the clinical space because they care, they want to do good work, they want to have purpose and they want to make a change for people. But the medical system doesn't train people to care. It trains people to give medical treatment. 
you've got a problem, I give you a cure, I fix you, and I move on. That's how the training is done. In fact, if anything, to some, in some ways, the medical training system says, I want to take the personality out of the doctor, the personality out of the nurse, because I don't want them to be damaged by getting too close to the patient. Whereas actually what the patient wants is, I want to be loved and cared for. And one of the key things I've learned in health is that our people are highly competent. They know how to be competent. They know how to look after people. They know how to do the treatment. And often they provide what I would say is a courteous level of treatment. If you go to the doctor, they're always kind of polite. They'll engage reasonably well, mostly. Not not always, but mostly. But do they really care? And I remember a conversation with one of our young nurses. She was just delightful. We were chatting outside uh, a patient's room just talking about everyday things, about her children, about her pet dog. And we had a really nice conversation. And she went through the door and she switched on courteous because that's the professional thing to do. She was treating a patient. She had to be courteous. And so her personality took a step back. She moved into this professional person. And what didn't come across was care. But actually what our patients want is care. And one of the key drivers that we've got to deliver and the changes we've got to make in our organisation and across the health system is to actually provide care, which is to say I care about you as a person, about and as you as an individual, because that's as important from a healing point of view as the medical treatment. And that's something which we've got to do a lot of work in. At the same time, you've then got to train other leaders who've been through a system which kind of denies to an extent a little bit the, the process of care to say to them, you've got to encourage your people to give care. You've got to encourage your people to uh, have the extra kind of time of day to smile, check in and say, how are you going? Not because it says on the list of things you should do, because you care. And that's one of the things we've got to spend a lot of time working on in the health industry. I think also from a leadership point of view, health is not a natural space for people to learn leadership. In some ways, it's an, it, it is quite an individualist uh, field. Clinicians quite often they, they train. Often they're kind of working part time in a public hospital, part time in a private hospital where they run their own business. They're their own person, often very highly intellectual, highly gifted, and they don't need to lead anyone really apart from themselves. Uh, and yet, as we move towards more teamwork, more integration between different clinical groups, we're seeing this need to have better leadership of people from an influence point of view. And so the next thing is actually, I think, saying to our clinical leaders, how do we help you understand influence? How do we help you understand the human relationship in terms of how you connect with others, how you influence others for the benefit of the patients who we're working with? And I think that influence training is going to be a key thing. Another thing is, is we've heard from some of the other podcasts that we've been recording and, and some of the other executives we've been speaking to about how as more and more gets automated, those skills that make us uniquely human become super important, so care like you were talking about. And I'm interested to hear from you around the announcement that St Vincent's is building Australia's first virtual hospital. Can you talk a little bit around what is a virtual hospital and what does that mean for the kind of workforce that you need? This is going to be one of our biggest challenges because we're actually creating this paradigm change in health. In, In the health world, people come to us. If they're sick, they go to a doctor and the doctor sends them to St. Vincent's. They come to our hospital, we kind of diagnose them there, they get their pathology done there, they get, if they've got imaging done, they get it done there. They need surgery, all gets done there, and then they stay, stay there till they're well enough to go home. And that's kind of our cycle of treatment. 
That's how it's been for a long, long period of time. But that's changing. And we're actually saying we're in a position now where we can treat people at home. And so in Sydney, we actually set up uh, what, what is a virtual COVID ward where we had COVID patients who were at home. We were monitoring at home. We had nurses engaging with them at home and treated it like a normal hospital ward, but they were in their home. Now, that culturally, can you imagine going from a place where everyone comes to you, your staff come to you, and suddenly you're saying, well, actually, we're, we're going to leave the hospital and we're going to start going to your house, which means you've got staff who may never, ever come into a hospital delivering health care in the community, in people's houses, monitoring them from a central point or having a third party monitoring them from a central point, and then engaging with them you've got to keep the culture so how do you keep St Vincent's culture when you've got a person who might never come to the hospital go out deliver services into someone's home how do you keep the St Vincent's culture and St Vincent's way of doing things in that environment I'm just going to follow up on that one because that's obviously something that right now with remote working a lot of corporate Australia is trying to grapple with and leaders are asking how do I try and maintain a culture when I may very rarely see individuals in my team do you have any thinking or uh, have you done any research around how you can try and maintain a culture in that dispersed environment? Yeah, I think uh, th this is where great leadership comes into play because when you've got people coming into your space every day, it can be relatively, I'd say it can be easy to lead. When you've got people who you don't see very often, you've actually got to consciously lead. So you've got to make a decision as a leader to reach out to them. Uh, I'll give you an example of an organisation I was mentoring uh, one of their leaders and I spoke to a couple of his people and in the first six weeks of COVID uh, five of their team leaders had had no contact from their direct leader none not not any not a phone call not a discussion or anything and I said to him okay here, here's what I tried to do with my team firstly I actually tried to consciously contact them far more than I would do normally so like three four times a week but micro level so it's just a phone call how are you going how's everything for you is it working or not if you need any help let me know so that, that's a kind of simple thing but you have to consciously do that you have to dial it and you make it happen because otherwise you forget about it and goes it goes out the window so you have to have this conscious process of engaging again i think you can have micro meetings where we've traditionally always had these meetings that are kind of two three hours long you don't have to have three-hour meetings you can have 15-minute meeting and get a lot done in that time frame which allows people to check in see how they're going you can kind of see people eye to eye see how they're looking how they're feeling the other thing which i think is important is one of the key things for any worker is to know that someone cares about them now a phone call can do that but in the crisis i actually relatively regularly for my team sent them small gifts just to say I'm thinking about you. I know it must be really hard for you in lockdown. This is just to know that someone cares. And w one of the key things I think we have to do is to, as leaders, show that someone has cared for, they're part of a team, and their leader knows they're part of a team. And then I think there's still going to be an importance of making sure there's some face-to-face -face happening on at least a, re a regular-ish basis so people have got that human contact with one another going forwards. But micro-discussion, remember to check in. You need to do consciously more, I think, to reach out to people to just know that you're there for them, I think, is where people need to go. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to change tack slightly because you're a male champion of change. And so I'd love to hear from you about what made you decide to make that commitment and your thoughts on the importance of diversity within organisations. And part of my thinking around this is it's not to say... I'm doing this because it's it's kind of uh, trying to help promote people who've not 
had the chance in the past. It's actually saying we should be what society is. And if we want to reflect organisationally to society, an organisation that can be successful, if we don't reflect it in our management team, in the cultures that we have, the people who are part of our organisation, particularly when we care about our community, we can't do that because we don't understand it. So if I don't have women leaders in the workforce who are able to aspire to do well, able to lead their people, the women who are looking up, up are going to see a bunch of blokes. No one wants to see that. They need to see themselves replicated so I can do that. If I don't have Indigenous leaders in the organisation, the young Indigenous uh, people are coming through, and we've got a great programme of young Indigenous people coming through into the organisation, will look up and say, there's no one like me, why would I be part of this organisation? Same in disability, same with people from uh, from uh, particularly refugee groups who struggled, people who've come from overseas often struggled, trying to create a space that says, actually, you're welcome here, you're included here, you can thrive here is kind of the um, outlook I've had. And uh, I think it's uh, I, I think it's an important thing. I, I kind of think we're making progress some days and other days you kind of get punched in the face and realise we're not making progress at all and you kind of just hear things that happen which are really sad in terms of particularly gender equality. I think racial equality is a really big issue and we've got a lot of work to do still. And I think that's a real call to action and probably a fitting note to end on. So, Toby Hall, a massive thank you to you and your organisation for everything that you do, particularly in 2020, and, of course, for joining us on the podcast. Hey, thanks. And uh, all, all the uh, thanks should go to my team. I've got great people and they've done a brilliant job this year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring the Future of Work with PwC Australia. For additional in-depth analysis, head on over to pwc.com.au forward slash future of work forward slash thinking beyond, where you'll find our latest report, Thinking Beyond, How the Pandemic is Rewiring a New World of Work. This podcast mini-series uncovers insights from industry experts so that together we can design a future that works for everyone. To make sure you don't miss a single episode, subscribe to this podcast series via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, feel free to give us a rating or review. And 2021 is already looking up because we have Season 2 in the works for you, so stay tuned for that. My name is Ben Hamer, and you've been listening to Exploring the Future of Work with PwC Australia. Thanks for joining us and goodbye for now.